Good morning, everyone. I thank our sponsors for the Parsha series for the year. Dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning is Leila Nishmas, Dove ben Menachem Manash. I also want to thank our sponsors for today. Also, dear friends, Lester and Judith Henner, in commemoration of the Yurtzites of Peggy Wool, Peral Bas Yehuda, Ruvain Vechaya, her beloved mother, and Minna Henner, Michaela Bas Naftali, Vesara, beloved mother. And also generously sponsored by Joyce and Shlomi Lederstein and family in honor of their parents. Our dear friends, Murray and Faye Eisenberg. Are they here? Oh! Shkoyach. Thank you very much. Special occasion? Just in your honor. Because you're wonderful. Every day is a special occasion. Every day. Okay. So happy that you're here. Uh, we delve into Sefer Shmos, Parsha Shmos. Before we do, a reminder. If your cell phone goes off, it's $180 to Tom Shabbos. So if you love Tom Shabbos, don't touch your phone. If you love your money, find your phone and turn it, please, to vibrator off. So, we begin, Sefer Shemos, Parsha Shemos, page 292, in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And with this, we begin our journey, our transition from the story of the first family to the story of a nation. And even our book of the story of a nation begins with a reminder of the significance of the story of the first family. The book of Bracious, as we always describe, is the development from a dysfunctional family, hopefully, to a functional one. From sibling rivalry to sibling harmony. From how to be able to create a continuity of generations. Say, Fabracious is the formula to how to live as a family. And we transition and we continue to grow with Sefer Shmos now, the development of not the first family, but the first nation. But it begins, Ve'ele Shmos b'nei Yisrael b'nei Mitzrayimah, the names of the Jewish people who came to Mitzrayim, as Yaakov, Ishu, Ve'eso, Bo, Yaakov, and Ishu, Ve'eso, a person and their family and their home, Ba'u, they came. We can't begin the rest of the story before remembering where we come from. A very, very significant Jewish trait or attribute. All of our holidays revolve around an act of memory of knowing where we come from. Not history, but memory. Rabbi Sachs points out in his Haggadah, history is his story. Memory begins with me. And the Jewish view of understanding where we come from is not studying history. History is studied academically, conceptually. History is, I am far removed. I can learn the history of other people, the history of other cultures, the history of other nations, and the history of other lands that has nothing to do with me. It's interesting, it's fascinating. You can watch the History Channel on a JetBlue flight when there's nothing else to watch. While I eat my blue chips, that's history, that's someone else's story. Memory begins with me, M-E, memory. It's me, it's my story. For us, as we make our way through Sefer Shmos, all of Torah and the celebration of every Jewish holiday, we are not commemorating something from history. This is so critically important to know and understand. We are not commemorating history. We are invoking a memory. These are our collective memories. It's personal, it's individual, it's much more meaningful. It's transformational. And so Sefer Shmos begins the journey, a reminder about our, about our memories. Now Rashi says, Even though God counted the 70, these 70 people who came down to Egypt, God counted them in their lifetime. But says Rashi, He goes back and he counts them again in their death. Because counts them again. Why? In order to express his love, his affection. 
you count what you love. Some people constantly are looking at their bank account and counting their money. They love their money. Some are looking at their stocks. Some are constantly counting children and grandchildren and Kenai Nahara great-grandchildren. Some are counting where their team is in the win-loss column in sports. People count what they love. Because Baruch says, I want my children to know I love them and to communicate them, even though I'm infinite, omnipotent, and I already know how many there are, and even though I've counted them previously already, I'm going to count them yet again. Because of chibosam. Pasuk in Yeshaya could have just as easily quoted a Pasuk from Kuf Mem Zayim of Te'ilim, what we're learning in Siddur snippets. He counts all the stars and he gives a name to each one. Ask the Svasemis, ask the Hilaga Ger Rebbe the following, the following question. Says Rashi says, Akadosh is recounting them in order to express his affection and love. To whom is he expressing it? Chazar Umanam, he reviewed and he counted again. Why? To make known his chiba, his love and affection. For who? Who didn't know about that love? Says the Svasemes, for us. This was not a declaration to the nations of the world. This was not for history to record that God loves us. This is for every one of us to know. He's intimately evolved in our lives. Every one of us is unique. We are singular. We're one of a kind. And he loves us. He knows about us and he gives us each a name. He counts and he knows. Do you know how many stars there are? Consider snippets, we just said this on this parak, second halaluka after Ashray. Anyone know how many stars there are? There are billions and billions of stars in our galaxy and there are tens of billions of galaxies. That's a lot, a lot of zeros of stars. There's an enormous amount of stars. We can't possibly count or know them, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Monem Espar Lakochavim. He counts and he knows them easily, easily. The Pasuk in Yeshaya or the Pasuk from David HaMelech. And not only does he know each star, but Lekulam Shemos Yikra. It's not a coincidence that our Sefer is called Shemos. And the Parsha begins, Ve'ela Shemos. Because if you want to understand how to find redemption in your life, it begins where? With your name. And why with your name? To know. Your name represents your essence and who you are. It represents your unique mission and why you're here. And if you want redemption, don't be passive and don't be a spectator and don't be fatalistic, but realize you're here for a reason, you're here for a mission, you're here for a purpose, and go make it happen. Go bring about, be that catalyst for redemption. Every one of us is unique. You know, there's a, a recent Jewish song which it's a beautiful song and he's a great artist and it's not a comment on him or the composer or the writer, but it's wrong. The song is, you're one in a million. You're one in a million. And why is it wrong? And it's the whole song, if you watch the video of this Jewish music song, these kids each say what they want to be when they grow up and this one kid says, I want to be a singer and the kids all laugh at him and the song is, you're one in a million. You can be whatever you want to be. You're one in a million. Why is it wrong? So I've told the story before about once a tour of the Library of Congress several years ago and the, the tour guide stopped at a certain major piece. It was behind thick glass. And she described to our group uh, all about the piece. So I said to her, oh, wow, this is incredibly rare. And she stopped. She actually looked offended. And she said, excuse me, this isn't rare. This is unique. It's one of a kind. There's nothing else like it. And I thought to myself in that moment, really, I didn't mean to offend her. 
But I thought to myself in that moment, that's the way the Ribbon Shalom wants each and every one of us to feel. Not that we're rare, not that we're unusual, but every human being is unique. We're not one in a million, and we're not one in a billion, and we're not one in a trillion. We're just one. We are unique. There is nothing else like it. I don't know who you write a letter to when there's a song that you think the lyrics are wrong to. But it's not one in a million. It's a beautiful song. It's a great artist. We're not one in a million. We are, we are one. We're singular. We're unique. We are exclusive. And that's our Kodesh Baruch Hu, The chibasim, that love, that affection that he was trying to communicate is not to others. It's not an announcement. It's not recording it in posterity. It's for us. And not only then, it's for us now to know that Hashem counts us over and over. If He counts us over and over, it means we should know that we count. That we count. That we're consequential. That we make a difference. That we're here for a reason. That our name reveals our essence. And it's what we're all about. It's part of the theme of this book. We're not going to come into it that much. But a little bit we're going to come into it. Those who started the new cycle of Daf know that the Gemara in the beginning of Baruchos talks about the Nevu, the prophecy a parent has when they bestow a name to a child. A name is not just a label. A name is a description. Because Baruch Hu endows us with a certain amount of divine inspiration when choosing a name. Because that name reveals the essence. That name creates, gives a power. The Mepharshim there in the Gemara wonder, what happened to Bechir Chavshis? What happened to free will? Are you saying that the name you gave your child locked that child into a certain life, certain qualities? So they explain, Rishon explained, no. Just like the Gemara elsewhere, the Rambam records this. When a person is born, they're born with certain predispositions, certain limitations. Your height, your IQ, your emotional intelligence, your artistic ability, your athleticism. There's a framework of certain predispositions that we have. And that's what the Gemara says, that when the child is conceived, it's announced, hi, Ani, or Ashir, are you going to be wealthy? Are you going to be poor? Are you going to be tall? Are you going to be short? Are you going to be intelligent? Are you going to be less than intelligent? But however, it does not say Tzadik Varasha. What you'll do with all of that, how you'll channel all of that, who you'll become with all of that, that's not predetermined. So similarly, the name provides the framework of a set of qualities or skills or predispositions, but how we channel it and what we do with it, that is up to, that is up to us. Paro understood this. The Imre Chaim says, just to skip ahead for a second, but the Imre Chaim says, Paro understood this. Says the Vishnu Sarebbe, Paro didn't call them their given names. What were their given names? That's not a trick question. Miriam and Yechavet. Yechavet and Miriam. And yet Paro called them Shifra and Pua. Why? Why did he change their names? He had a Mataram Yuchedes. He had a specific reason. If they would maintain their Yiddish and their names, because their Jewish name would connect them to their Jewish identity. It would connect them to their unique Jewish mission in life. They would understand who they are. And therefore, says the Imre Chaim, Paro said, if I want to take away their hope and their aspiration, if I want to crush their ambition, if I want to eliminate their sense of a belief in their mission, then the first thing I have to do is take away their name. We know any other enemies who followed in that footstep did even worse. They dehumanized us not only by taking away a name, they replaced it with a number, with a number. Our enemies understand that when we tap into our name, we're tapping into our destiny. 
We're tapping into our essence and who we're meant to be. Paro was the first to employ this strategy, and it's been repeated countless times through Jewish history, tragically, where an enemy understands that our kryptonite, you want to weaken the Jewish people, you want to take away their hope and their faith and their mission, change their name or take away the name altogether, because a person should know. That's why names are so significant. Names are redemptive. Names give a mission. It's not a coincidence. You know, today you speak about the bar mitzvah boy or the bas mitzvah girl, and you tell them, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, nobody's ever accomplished what you have, even at your young age, you're amazing, we've made a logo for you, you're a brand, you're incredible, we have a party. But in the old days, what used to happen, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this, I'm the, the chief violator of that. That's the world we live in today. But in the old days, when I was a bar mitzvah, nobody talked about how great you were. You know what they told you? Let me tell you about your name and how great you need to become. Let me tell you who you're named after and their great qualities and therefore the mission that you have. Why we gave you that name and what it represents for our hope and our dream for who you will be and the difference you will make. A name. It used to be at a simcha. You talked about the name. And where the, now you don't have time for that. You don't have time because you have to talk about the chesed project they did and the learning accomplishment. You have to make the siyam. You have to say their virtues. You have to profess your love to your spouse and how the party never would have happened without them. You have to thank the party planner. There's no time left to talk about the name. But it used to be that the essence of a simcha was, I have you all together, my holy mishpacha. Let me tell you about where we come from. Let me tell you why you were named. Let me tell you what this name represents. When you give a name, you're giving a dream. You're giving a destiny. You're giving a sense of mission. When someone removes that name, they're trying to weaken. They're trying to create a sense of hopelessness and of helplessness. So we begin with the Sfas Emes, who says, well, who's Rashi? There's some sort of a chiba being communicated. To whom is this chiba being communicated? Says the Sfas Emes, the Ge'er Rebbe, to Klal Yisrael ourselves. Now Rabbi Salavitchik has an interesting insight. Rabbi Salavitchik points out that this pasuk, Elish Moz B'nei Yisrael, Vin, starts with the Vava Chibor. Not only do we start a sentence with end, not only do we start with a parsha with end, we're starting a whole book with end. What publisher would publish a book that you submitted the manuscript and it began with end? Everyone knows you can't start a sentence with end. Okay, I leave that to you to think about. So why is Sefer Shmos begin with vit, the Vavachibor, Ve'ela, and these are the names. Just say, these are the names. What do you mean, and these are the names? What are we connecting it with? I leave that to you to think about. But there's another anomaly in the Pasuk. It says, Shmos These are the names of the Kali Yisrael who come to Mitzrayim. Habaim. What is the word Habaim? What should it have said? Not Habaim. It should have said Asher Ba'u. It should say Asher Ba'u. These are the names of those who came down to Egypt. Why does it say Asher Ba'im? Which means they're still coming. Rabbi Salavitchik has a tremendous insight, but a sad insight. The Medrash notes the anomaly and interprets the intent of the phrase Habaim as if Bnei Israel had come that very day. The term Abayim suggests that the people of Egypt did not consider the Jewish people part of their state, society, and culture. They looked upon them as if they had just entered Egypt. How long must one remain in a country to be considered a citizen? The words of power to his advisors suggest they considered Bnei Israel as having just arrived. Indeed, the name for the Israelites, Ivri, means completely separated on the bank of wherever everyone else is Ma'aver on the other side. Even though Klai Israel came many years earlier, Egypt still viewed them as strangers. And comments the Rav, this belief in the otherness of the Jew repeats itself throughout history. 
Jews lived in Germany even before the Dark Ages. During the Middle Ages, the Jews supported Germany from within. They were an integral part of society. Yet many centuries after they arrived, Jews were wiped out in the Holocaust. They were charged with being strangers, not counted among society. The essence of anti-Semitic doctrine throughout history was always depicted, always depicted the Jew as a stranger. They charged that we are strangers, Ivrim. We never assimilate ourselves into any community. We are outsiders. And to a degree, they're right. And to a degree, it's ironic or paradoxical. They remind us what we have forgotten. We are to remember this balance of the Ger Vitosha, of the Rav's insight with Avram Avinu that we've shared countless times. That we are both a citizen and we are a, uh, we are a resident and we are a visitor. We're a citizen and we're a foreigner. We're a, we're a Ger Vitoshev at the same time. When we remember that, that we are part of and apart from simultaneously, then we live in harmony. And when we forget it, then they come and they remind us. And the Medrash tells us that it was in the merit of four things that we were redeemed from Egypt. We didn't change our names or our language or our clothing, and we didn't change our God, the Medrash says. People forget that fourth one. We didn't change our God. When we maintain our distinctness, when we remember our Yiddish Anuman, our, our Hebrew name, when we remember, I recently gave a shir about birthdays, how many observant, strictly vigilant, scrupulous Torah Jews don't even know their Hebrew birthday? They don't know their Hebrew anniversary. They don't know what day it is on the Hebrew calendar. I won't test you. How tragic how many Jews in a room can't necessarily even name what Hebrew month we're in. How do we maintain our Jewishness, our distinctness, our calendar, which preserved us? If we can't even maintain that identity, and therefore the Rav says, why does it not say Asher Ba'u? They came to Egypt because our enemies remind us Asher Ba'im. You're never fully here. It's as if you just got here. You're not part of us. You're a stranger. You're the other. And when they name us the other, when they position us adversarially as the stranger, it's easy to practice hatred and discrimination against us. Revolba has a beautiful insight. It says, Ruvay Shimon Levi, we now name who it was, Yisachar Zvulun bin Yamin, because even though we have the Vav, which links us to Bracious, in case you forgot the names of the tribes since last week, we got to review them now, which is in itself a question we're not going to get into why we need to review it. But it concludes, Why does Yosef get a special mention? We listed all the tribes, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehudi, Yisachar, Zulam, Minyam, and Dan, Aftali, Gad, V'asher, V'yosef hayab b'mitzrayim. And Yosef was in Mitzrayim. And then, V'yamas Yosef, V'chol achav. Yosef dies, oh yeah, and all of his brothers, V'chol hador ahu, and everyone of an Yisrael, Poro, V'yishtu, V'yim, V'yatum, V'mod, V'od. And we promulgated and spread, V'atim aleha aretz osam, the land was filled with us. We were everywhere. And then the story begins, V'yakom el chadash. But why is Yosef spelled out? So, Ravolbe, the great Mashkiach, in his Ale Shor, in Chelek Aleph, I'm going to tell you two great Ravolbas today, one from Chelek Aleph and one from Chelek Beis. Sorry, this one is from Chelek Beis, Chelek Aleph, yeah. Chelek Aleph, it's page Samaches in Ale Shor, if you want to see it inside, it begins on page Samach Zayin. And here the Mashkiach, Ravolbe, is developing the idea of Seder, the significance of order in our lives. Punctuality, organization, order. Yekis Perkop, this is for you. Seder, that to be a real Jew, to be a Torah observant Jew, to be an Eved Hashem, a Ben Aliyah, a Bas Aliyah, 
to be an aspirational Jew, you have to live with Seder. You can't say, listen, I keep Torah mitzvah, Shabbos, Kashrus, Lashon Harash, Mirsenayim, I'm honest in business. Who cares if my house is a mess? Who cares if my life is a mess? Who cares if I'm always running late? The answer is to be a real Jew, you have to live with Seder. And we could talk hours about this, which we won't. He has a beautiful essay here on the significance of Seder. But at the end of this essay, he says, this was the secret to Yosef's survival, and by extension, our survival in Mitzrayim. This was the secret. He writes, The more a person is settled in their mind, the more strategic, the more thoughtful, the more settled, the more present, the more mindful, the more organized they are. If you want to know whether someone's great, go check their home, how well it's organized. I think it was the altar of Kelm they tell the story of. He wanted to check on how well his son was doing in yeshiva. He made his way to the yeshiva. And he didn't go to the base medrash to see how well his son was doing. Where did he go? His dormitory room. When he went to the dormitory room and he saw that the bed was made and the shoes were organized and everything was proper, he went home, he didn't bother going to the base medrash. He knew that if there was Seder in that part of his life, then it meant that there was harmony, he was settled, he was, he was in a path of growth. A Seder of Chaim, to live a life of order, to live a life of getting things done, to live a life of productivity and efficiency, means that we're misudar, we're organized in how we speak. There are people that don't know how to articulate, they can't communicate effectively. There's no beginning, middle, or end to what they say. They're fumfering for words. If you're not misudar, there's an epidemic and a plague in our world today. I recently asked an educator if he can address it in school. You cannot talk to a teenager without their using the word like 400 times in one sentence. And if you say to them, say that to me again, but without the word like, they, they start to you know, break into, uh, they can't do it. Really bright, they're killing the SATs, they're getting in honors to beautiful schools and they can't communicate without saying the word like 400 times. If you're not misudar in the way you speak, Rafpam. In his day, Rav Pam, it was yeshivish to say, whatchamacallit. You'd forget the word and you'd say, whatchamacallit. And Rav Pam said, a ben Torah doesn't say whatchamacallit. You, you don't, you're not fumfering or looking for the words. A ben Torah is misudar. You've actually thought about what you're going to say before you say it. So you've organized your thought and it comes out organized. You have to be misudar in your life, in your dress, in your appearance, in your, in your punctuality, in your sleep, in your eating, in your everything. He has a whole essay. We're not going to read the whole essay. I just want to get to the part relevant to us and our parsha. He writes here at the end. That's how you know you're around greatness. The person who's great is well organized. The person who's great is disciplined. Discipline is freedom. Yosef and his children were among the 70. What is the Torah telling us? by giving specific mention to Yosef. And don't we know he was in Mitzrayim? That's where the whole storyline is unfolding. He's in Mitzrayim. Of course we know where he is. It's telling us his tzidkos. Rashi, the beginning of Shemos, tells us, you know what it means when it says, Yosef Hayab in Mitzrayim? Yosef Hayab in Mitzrayim. It was the same Yosef who grew up in the house of Yaakov. It was the same Yosef who lived in Canaan. It was the same Yosef who was the Yeshiva Bachar Yosef, and the same Yosef who went to the camp Yosef, and the same Yosef who was in the youth groups Yosef. And even though he was elevated to the Viceroy of Egypt, 
It was the same Yosef. He was just now Hayab Mitzrayim. He didn't lose at all who he was. He didn't compromise or forfeit or concede or sacrifice his identity. So how did he do that? How did Yosef preserve and maintain who he was even in that circumstance and environment that was entirely antithetical or against him? So writes Revolvo, the organized person doesn't get rattled. If you know that every day I daven, every day I do the daf yomi, every day I've taken on the nach yomi, every day I do this, every day I do that, then it doesn't matter whether you're home or you're traveling for business, whether everything's tranquil and quiet, or whether you're confronting crisis. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. If you are a misudar person, it doesn't impact you, it doesn't compromise you, it doesn't corrupt you. You don't change. Suggests Revolba, the core of Yosef's strength that preserved his integrity, his moral authority, his religious identity, even in Mitzrayim, was that Yosef was misudar. That was it. The person like a person who goes like a dark, like a blind person in darkness. And blessed is the person who knows how to safeguard that you can maintain your order, your organization, your schedule. You can maintain your discipline in any circumstance. If we can cultivate, if we can grow in that sense of discipline, it will serve to help us when we confront whatever life throws at us. That was the story of Yosef. And here Revolba quotes the author of Kelman. He says, you know, and, and this maybe the Yekas should stop listening, but we don't worship order, time, organization. It's not an ends unto itself, it's a means. But it's the most critical means to achieve the ends of the things that matter most. And the author of Kelm gave the following beautiful mushal. Then we'll go on to the Parsha, because I think we're still in the first Pasuk. Then we'll go on. The author of Kelm said the following. Stop me if I said this recently, I don't remember. But if you're wearing or you have a pearl necklace, beautiful, expensive pearl necklace. What's the most precious part of the pearl necklace? What is the valuable part of the pearl necklace? The pearls. Each of the pearls are the value. If I ask you how much does the string cost that's holding the pearl necklace together, it's negligible. It costs nothing. Nobody sees it. It's not even like a gold chain that's hanging a piece of jewelry from it. You can't even see the string. It's negligible. You could use fishing wire. It's nothing. I'm not suggesting that, but it's nothing. It's nothing. And yet, which is the most important part of the necklace? The string, because if you don't have the string, you don't have a necklace. The string is what holds all the pearls together. So said the author of Kelm, time, punctuality, order, organization, discipline, that's not pearls. That's not worth worshiping. That's not of inherent value. What's valuable is davening, learning, chesed, time with family. That's what's valuable. But if you don't have the necklace that holds it all together, then the necklace falls apart and the pearls roll away from you all over the floor and you lose them. If we want to have these pearls of our life and not lose them by their running away from us, they need to be organized on a necklace. That necklace is called discipline. Yosef Hatzadik mastered it and it served him well, not only when he was in the comfort of his father's home, but it is what served him well and protected him even when he descended to, down to Mitzrayim. Perak Aleph Pasuk Tes, let's fly. 
was a new king who arose. Asher lo yodas Yosef. He didn't know Yosef. That was the Jewish people's fault. Some of the Rishonim point out. I mention it every year. The reason it's important to lobby and advocate and not become disillusioned with the disgusting and ugly world of politics is because if we don't maintain relationships, then we are forgotten and our interests become neglected. And the degree to which we invest in and maintain relationships, then we can advocate and advance our interests. There was a new king, and some of them unfortunately point out, how is it possible Yosef saved the economy of Egypt? How does any ruler rise to that level and not know basic Egyptian history to know who was the one who saved their economy? And they point out, it doesn't mean he didn't know the Yosef of the history books. That Yosef he knew. The Yosef on Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, the Yosef of the history books that you can Google, that Yosef he knew. You know who he didn't know? The offspring of Yosef. He didn't know the living Yosef. He didn't have a relationship. There were not ongoing relationships. And when we lose our ongoing relationships, we lose our influence, we lose our impact, and we lose our being able to succeed in our interests. So he said to his people, This nation of the Jewish people, they are great, and they are greater than we. He was threatened. What was he threatened by about this Jewish people? Does the Pasuk itself reveal to us what he was threatened by? So, the uh, Rebbe, the, the first Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael, says the Pasuk itself tells us what he was afraid about. You know what he was afraid of? When are we Rav Vatsum? When are we strong and great? When? Hey, Am Bnei Yisrael. When we are united, when we are a people, when we are a nation, when we display fierce loyalty to one another, when we see what we have in common, not what we have different from one another. When our enemies see that we are splintered and fragmented and broken, that's when we're vulnerable. That's when they go in to eliminate us. But when they see that we're formidable and that we're united, and that we stand as one. That's when they view us and perceive us as Ravatsum. So Paro reacts and he says, Hinei, behold, Am Bnei Yisrael. They're acting as an Am. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out the word Am comes from the word Im, meaning with. When are we an Am? When are we really a nation? When are we truly a people? When we see ourselves inextricably linked, connected, Im tied together. But if I'm me and you're you and I wear this yarmulke and you wear that yarmulke and I vote this way and you vote that way and we can't coexist and we send our kids to different schools so therefore we can't be friends or have Shabbos meals. We have to have competing events and competing communities and competing shuls and competing everything. When we're not im and we're not therefore an am, then we are not rav v'atsum mimenu. Which one of our later enemies understood this secret as well? The other kryptonite was... Haman. Haman takes a look and he says, Wow. Look at them. They're scattered, they're fragmented, they're divided, they're spread out. And therefore, it's the time. I'm going to go in for the kill. When we act as an am, that's when we are, that's when we are strong. Keep going. So he says, he's threatened and he says, 
Come, let's outsmart them, pen your bed. They're going to grow a number. They're going to be that fifth column. They're going to rebel against us. Let's crush them. Let's crush their hopes, crush their dreams. Let's create such a burden upon them. What does it say? As much as they would afflict, it would increase and spread out. And so they became disgusted. They became disgusted by the Jewish people. Why does wine play such a role in our lives? For a lot of reasons. We have to numb ourselves to the reality of how many people want to kill us. Good. But why is it? Every Jewish event, every simcha, includes wine. It's wine at a bris, and wine at a pigeon at ben, and wine at a chuppah, and wine at a shabbos, and wine at a yantif, and wine at... There's always wine. Why is it always wine? Wine represents the Jewish experience. How do you get wine? By squeezing the grape. And when you squeeze it, what you get out is more valuable and more precious and more delicious. And you think you've crushed it and you think you've squeezed it, but in fact, all you've done is produce and generate something even better than it. And Kla Yisrael have been squeezed and crushed and stepped on, but like a fine wine, we're better with time and age, and what comes out is even sweeter, what comes out is even, is even better. So they tried to squeeze us and crush us. Kasher ya'anuoso, the more they crushed, ken the better our wine got. And what happened as a result when they saw that? They didn't say, which is what intellectually would have made sense to say, huh, something's unusual here. The more we press, and the more we discriminate, and the more we try to destroy, the stronger they become, the greater they become. Instead of ayakutsu, Vayakutsu, the root of the word Vayakutsu, what does that mean? They're disgusted. Vayakutsu, like, like Baltashaktsu, is repulsive, disgusted. And what repulsed them? What disgusted them? What does the Pasuk say? What disgusted them? It's not a trick question. The words are right there. Vayakutsu mipnei b'nei Yisrael. So listen to the vision of the Rebbe. Listen to what the Imre Chaim says. Chayehem you know what they couldn't stand was the Yiddish Eponim Mipnei the word Pnei has a double entendre that's what the Imre Chaim is tapping into Mipnei can mean they couldn't stand the Jewish people Mipnei because of the Jewish people but the word Pnei also means a Eponim Mipnei like Pnei Shabbos Nekabla. We sing Lechadodi. Pnei Shabbos Nekabla means what are we putting on? Our Shabbos Panim. My Vachadich Panim, I'm leaving aside. My all anxious, worried, chaotic, stressed, frustrated, angry, jealous Panim, I'm leaving aside. And as I sing Lechadodi, Pnei Shabbos Nekabla, I'm putting on my Shabbos Panim. Well, what could Paro and Nitzrim not be able to stand? Vayakutsu. They were disgusted by what? Mipnei b'nei Yisrael. From the panam of a Jew. The panam, the sweetness, and hopefully the purity, and the kindness, and the honesty, and the morality. He writes, a Yiddish What was it that saved the Jewish people? The four things that caused us to be redeemed were our identity, our distinctiveness, which were our name and our clothing, our appearance. The panim of a Yid, of a Jew. We have a responsibility, we have an obligation. Whether it's 
the way we carry ourselves and the appearance and the demeanor and the disposition that we have should be identifiable and recognizable that we stand for Torah, that we have a relationship with the Ribbon Shalom, with Hashem. And that's the Mipnei B'nei Israel. Then he says something in Yiddish, which I can't read, but uh, probably a continuation of that theme. So the Mipnei doesn't just mean because of the Jewish people, it means because of the Ponim, because of the face of the Jewish people, you are not nearly as excited about it as I am. I like that shot. Okay, Perak of Pasuk Yedzayin, continuing. So Vayimaru as Chayehem, they made their life even more miserable. Ba'avodah kasha b'chomer v'veinim, so the king of Egypt turns to whom? La Mialdosa Ivrios, to these nameless women, took away their name, took away their power, their essence, Yocheved and Miriam, and named them Shifra and Pua, and then he gave them the charge, who to kill, who to allow to live, and so on and so forth. They saw God, and they did not behave the way that they were instructed. And they allowed the children to be able to, to be able to live. And if you fast forward, what was the result or consequence? Because they had the bravery and the courage to stand up and to ignore the instruction of the king and instead to follow the king of kings, to feel Hashem's presence, they did not carry out his instruction. What is their reward? Skip down. Pasuk says, when God saw that the Mialdos were God-fearing, he made for them homes. What does it mean he made for them homes? Says Rashi. He made for them a home. They were the progenitors of the priestly, Kuna, Levia, and of monarchy. As the Pasuk says, even as Beis Hashem, as Beis HaMelech, Kuna, Levia, Miyuchevet, Umalchos, Mimiriam, Kedisa, Meseches, Sota. Kedisa, Meseches, Sota. So here, Revolbe, this is in Chilik Beis of Alei Shor, in volume two, on page Shin Mem Aleph. And he says the following. What's going on here? Why does Yerushamayim how did they display Yerushamayim? And what about the Yerushamayim earned them this reward? And how do we understand the relationship of the reward to what they did? Is this some external reward? Is this Hashem said, well, you did, you were a good girl. You were two good little girls. And therefore, I'm giving you a nice house with a white picket fence. It's a reward for having behaved in the right way. So listen to what Revolba says. Again, I wish I could read to you this whole section, this essay on Yira, on Yerushamayim. He says, Yira bona esha adam. Yira is not just a quality that we have, but it is foundational. It forms us. It's how we live our lives. It's who we are. And when the foundation, when in our core, we live with a Yira and a Yira Shamayim, we are able to therefore withstand whatever test we face. So here in South Florida, our homes have to be built to a certain code. Because the foundation has to be strong. Why? Because every few years we're tested. Hopefully just with a warning and a scare. Sometimes with a real hurricane. Category 3, Category 4, Category 5. We don't know which, which nisyonos. We don't know what hurricanes are going to face us in our lives. And whether it will be a tropical storm or a Category 5. But if you want to be prepared and you want to be ready, there's a code by which you build your life. And the foundation and the core and the code by which we build our lives, which prepares us to withstand whatever force hurricane winds will come our way, is called Yerashanayim. 
if you live with a healthy dose and reality of Yer Shemaim, that there's a creator and he's the source of all and he's involved in my life and nothing is random or chance and I turn to him and I live my life with gratitude and appreciation for the gifts and I turn to him to object and protest of the things I don't like and I turn to him with a reliance and faith that nothing happened by accident it's all by design and even when I don't like it and even when it doesn't feel pleasant it's still all for the good when I spend my life working on Yer Shemayim, I have a strong core I have a strong core in the world of exercise, which I am far from an expert at. They'll tell you in the gym, people like to work on their arms and their shoulders, and you know, that's where you show off how strong you are, how muscular you are. But what's the most important part for you to work on? That as you'll get older and age, that will keep you strong and standing upright is your core. You need a strong core. The core of a Yid, the core of a Jew is Yerushalayim. The foundation of a Jew is Yerushalayim. Binyan ha'adam mascha ba'anagaz derecheret u'mamshach b'lim ha'torah v'kinyan ma'aloseha. Gam derecheret shal Torah b'mahusa hu yireh. Living with derecheret is yireh. If you love God, you want to emulate Him. If you fear God, if you live with a ever-present awareness and acute mindfulness that Hashem is with you, that dictates everything from what you watch and what you do in your entertainment and where you go and what you say and how you behave and what you wear. Hashem is always by our side. That's what Yerushalayim is really all about. And then he said again, I'm skipping. You should read this. Come see. Who emanates from Yochevel? Moshe Rabbeinu. And who descends from Miriam? Bitzalel, the architect of the Mishkan, the house of God. When God rewards us, it's not like when the kid does the chore at home, you give the allowance. When the kid listens nicely, you buy him a candy. When a Kodesh Baruch Hu rewards us, it's not some external reward. The schar, the reward, is the fruit of our labor. The reward is the, what comes out. The reward is the result of what we did. These mialdos, these, what's the translation? I won't say what you might call it. What's the translation, mialdos? Midwives, thank you. These midwives, they surpassed, they overcame a tremendous nisayon. Is there a category five? It was a category 10 hurricane. Paro says to them, kill them or kill you. That's a category 50 hurricane. They risked their lives when they ignored Paro's command. And where, was, where did they get the courage? From where did they derive the strength to ignore Paro and to risk their lives? Because they had a foundation and a core of Yira Shemaim. You understand? Their core, their personal home, their binyan, their lives were founded, were built on Yerushalayim. So the reward is not some external reward. It's not have a candy. It's not here's a gift certificate to Lord and Taylor. It's not some external reward. It's you built a foundation of your life on Yerushalayim. So therefore your progeny will be the homes that promulgate and that represent and that stand for Yerushalayim. 
Mamash Mida Kenegad Mida. Venimsa Agav, Kiparshos and Yaldos, Yishurish Kosefer Shmos, Mimena Yatsamosha Rabbeinu, Ubeis Medrasha Bahamishkan. You have to understand that these few psukim of the Mialdot, these few psukim of the midwives, says Ravolba, this is the essence of all Sefer Shmos. Or I'll put it differently. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for these righteous Jewish women. Moshe gets the spotlight. Moshe gets the title. Moshe gets the fanfare. Moshe is forever in perpetuity the Rabbeinu. There would be no Moshe if there were no Yocheved and Miriam, Shifra and Pua, if there were no Mialdos who stood up and had the courage. And how did they do that? Because until then they had been working in their lives to have a foundation in the core of Yerushalayim. If they first waited to display Yerushalayim until it was tested, right? The people who are scrambling when the hurricane's coming, oh, let me now reinforce the foundation of my house. Good luck to you. Evacuate. Get out. It's too late. It's too late to reinforce the foundation of your house if you have not prepared it for the storm that's going to come your way. These righteous women had spent a lifetime preparing themselves for the storm that was coming their way. Therefore, they were able to withstand it, survive it, triumph beyond it, and their reward, which is not external to them, it's not an all-expense-paid vacation to wherever, it's not an external reward. The reward meaning is the pre of their effort, the fruit of their effort. Namely, they had these homes. They are the source of everything. They are the source of everything. And the way that Revolba put it so beautifully, Rabbi Soloveitchik similarly credits these women and says something very, very significant. And through it, maybe I get kapara for trouble I got in from a parshish here a couple months ago. <laughs> Listen to what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. Vayas lahem batim. These houses represent leadership. God turned the leadership over of Israel over to these midwives. The authority to lead and teach B'nai Yisrael was transferred to them. Chazal indicate the midwives were Yocheved and Miriam. The Medrash tells us that Amram, the Gadol Ador, the leader of Klai Yisrael, when Paro issued the decree to kill every Jewish man, Amram divorced Yocheved. He said, are you kidding? This is the future for Jewish boys? I can't risk bringing a new boy, baby boy in the world. So he withdrew. And he divorced, he divorced uh, Yocheved. So Miriam rebuked Amram. And she said, you know, your reaction, your response, your decree, your damage is worse than Paro. Paro only decreed against the male boys they have to die. You have now determined that there won't even be any girl babies. So Miriam protested. And with the birth of Moshe, Miriam prophesied that he would become the redeemer of Israel. And when Moshe was placed in the Nile, Amram became enraged with Miriam. See, how could you have done that? You created this reconciliation between me and your mother, and the result was a little boy, and now look what happened. We're putting him in a Nile. It's exactly my worst fear being realized, says Amram. And Miriam says, wait, not so fast. And then what does Miriam do, by the way? She watches. She positions herself to see and to watch because she's so confident with her faith and her hope and her optimism and her sense of prophecy. She knows that she did the right thing and what's going to happen as a result. And therefore, the continuity of the Jewish people, this is not apologetics. This is not lip service. This was not written in a time in which we had to be concerned with egalitarianism or women's lib or feminism or what would they say. Chazal were saying this in a time where they owed women nothing and they had no fear of women whatsoever. And you know why they said it? Because it's true. Because it's a core Jewish value. It's not an apologetic. And don't dismiss it as a modern day apologetic. Chazal understood the role of Nashim Tzidkaniyos who were behind almost every miracle and every holiday that we have, and the same is true, and the same is true here.
And the Rav continues with this. A man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of, the, of Levi. Why are they anonymous? Why aren't their names given here in this context? Is a question. But the next Pasuk, Vatasem, and placed in the basket. So what's the Vatasem? Says the Rav. It's interesting to note that all the verbs used in describing the hiding of Moshe and is later being placed in the basket, they're all in the feminine form. Vatera, Vatitzpeneu, Yachla, Vatikach, Everything is done in the feminine form. It's not a coincidence, says the Rav. Why? Because it was all done by Yechavet and Miriam. Amram had no say in the matter. The leadership was taken from him. It was given to the righteous midwives. Vayas lahem batim. God made Yechavet and Miriam the leaders. Decision-making was taken from Amram and turned over to these women. And that's why we are here today, only in their merit, only because of their vision, their optimism, their hope. Of course, we all know that we... Um, codified that, so to say. We took the very mirrors that they had used to beautify themselves, became the foundation of the Kiyor. When the Kohanim came to be of service to Hashem, they looked in those mirrors and they remembered who was really responsible for uh, our being here, for their even being that Mishkan all together. All together. Okay. Parak Beis Pasukei. Parak Beis Pasukei. We're moving over. So now this little boy is floating in the basket. And the daughter of Parosis, what was her name? Bisya. Bisya. She goes to bathe. She sees this basket. And she stretches out her hand in order to reach it, in order to pull it in. Says Rashi, what's the story of stretching out her hand? We all know. Her hand, she was like plastic. It stretched, 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 longer than anatomically, normally, the physiology of the body. Her hand stretched, 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 well beyond. It went much further. Now, I'll tell you a word you all know, but it's worth repeating because it's so beautiful. Rav Yitzchak Varka says the following. I don't understand. A miracle happened because Basparo's over here. She's busy doing the back float over here. And the basket's floating over there. And it's at such a distance that no one in their right mind would think that they can grab the basket. And yet a miracle happened and her arms stretched out and she grabbed the basket. And answer it's Vorka a very simple question. Why'd she put out her hand? If you're back floating over here and the basket's floating over there and you're not near each other, nice that it turned out after the fact the miracle happened. But why'd she put out her hand? How does that make any sense at all? So Rabbi Yitzhak Vorka says, and Rabbi Friend quoted this, not this Siyam Hashas, but seven and a half, a little over seven and a half years ago now, at the previous Siyam Hashas, and he quoted a great secular poet who put it differently, that that which is, what was the, what was the Lashon? Rabbi Yitzhak Vorka answers, you know why she did it? Because you have to reach for that which feels impossible and then Hashem makes it possible. That which is beyond our reach is not beyond our grasp. Even that which feels beyond our reach is not beyond our grasp. He said it because you start out 2,711 pages of Shas. And at the very beginning you say, Asiyah, my Shas, are you kidding? Seven and a half years of not missing a day? Nach Yomi, a parak of Nach, two straight years of not missing a day? Ah, that's beyond my reach. It's impossible. I can never grab onto it. I can never latch onto it. I can never make that happen. You just have to try. And when you try, 
Hashem makes that which is beyond our reach within our grasp. And that's the word of Rav Yitzhak Vorka. He says, why did she reach out? Because she wasn't thinking, is it possible, is it not possible? She was thinking, there's a baby crying in a basket. So she reached. And even that which is, feels impossible, when we begin and when we try, we turn the impossible into possible. And that also correlates with another understanding about, about her, about this year. A couple more quick thoughts. Of course, we didn't get to the end, but let me throw a couple more at you, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Pasuk says, She opens it, she sees a baby. What do you mean, na'ar? I thought you just said you see a baby. Is it a baby or a na'ar? Which is it? So Rashi tells us, it was a baby who had the voice of a na'ar. He had a very deep voice. He had a very mature voice. When Moshe cried, he sounded like an adult crying already. But the Balaturim famously says, no, you know who the na'ar is? It's not Moshe. Who's the na'ar? Aaron. Vinei na'ar bocha means Aaron is watching from a distance. I shared this in the shir that we gave on Nosei Ba'olam Chavero. Nosei Ba'olam Chavero means that you can't, Hagar, when Yishmael is suffering, can't bear to watch. That's a cruel. When a mother can't bear to watch, that's cruelty. The Jewish view is I can't bear to look away. I can't look away. Someone I care about, someone I feel empathy towards is suffering, I can't look away. B'nei na'ar bocheh, Aaron can't stop watching. We see that with Hashem. Kodesh Baruch in our parsha that we're not going to get to, talks to Moshe from the snare. Why from such a lowly thorn bush? Because Hashem says, I'm with you in this suffering. Moshe, his whole life, the Mitzri, and that the well is A big theme of our parsha is of is to try to help another. Last week I gave a shir in Boynton Beach. Anyone here from Boynton? Last week I gave the shir in Boynton Beach. The other side of the coin of you can listen online. It'll be in the newsletter on Thursday. The other side of the Nosei Ba'olam Chavero is to fargin another. To be able to be Nosei Ba'ol means to celebrate the joy of another person. It's harder. Which is harder? To be Nosei Ba'ol to help the suffering of another or to share in the joy of another? So the author of Kelm, he's getting a lot of play today. The author of Kelm says, you know which one's harder? To share in the joy. When someone else you know, you heard Khalila has been diagnosed with an illness or undergoes a financial collapse or their relationship is dissolving or they have terrible troubles from a child or grandchild, you know, you look at them and you say, Baruch Hashem, at least that's not me. Now I can help. I'll make a meal, I'll give a ride, I'll do something because I'm so, so grateful, at least it's not me. But when someone else is making a simcha, someone else, there's a shidduch of their child, someone else, else has the stocks that are flying through the stock market, someone else bought a new, home, new house or has a nice car, then you say, why isn't that me? I should have that. And it's hard to share in the joy of another. That too is being no say but all. The capacity to forgive another, to feel the joy and the happiness of another person is a big theme here. So she opens and the Pasuk describes that Bisya sees the baby and only at the end of the same Pasuk does it say, Mi So what happens? She opens it, she looks, she feels pity, vatachmola love, and then she says, Mi What's going on over here? So, Rav Nissan Alper, the Talmud of Rav Moshe, one of the Russian yeshiva at Yeshiva University, in his Limudei Nisan, he says the following. He says, you know what's happening over here is very simple. We have an expression, chesed ve'emes. We describe a Kodesh Baruch Hu's two attributes, chesed ve'emes. Why is it in that order chesed ve'emes? The answer is chesed ve'emes are opposites. Chesed is kindness. Chesed is compassion. Chesed is flexibility. MS is justice, strict justice and truth. If you're showing chesed, then you're not representing the MS. And if you're executing MS, if you're practicing strict justice, you have no chesed. 
And that's why, Rav Nesanapot says, the Ribbono Shalom is described as chesed ve'emes. Because his first instinct is chesed, and then he tempers the chesed with some emes. But if the first instinct were emes, it'd be hard to introduce chesed. He says, Bisya Baspara had a quality. The first she felt compassion, then she asked questions. Vatachmola love. The first thing she felt was pity. Then, then she said, Oh, who is this kid? What would have happened if it were the opposite, says Rav Nissan Alpert. Could you imagine she opened the basket and she said, Little baby, let me see some ID. Where are you from? Who are you? Is there a label? Is there a tag? What's your name? Oh, you're, you're from a child of these Ivrim? Back in the basket, back out to sea. Uh, my father's in the middle of killing your whole people. My tati, my abba, my dad is in the middle of a genocide against your whole people. I'm sending you back out to sea. The only reason we are here is because what did she first feel? Compassion and pity. Her, her inherent response, her instinct was the first thing she felt was pity only then did she ask who is this baby and by the time that she felt the pity asking who is this baby didn't take away and says the Rav Nissan Alpert that's why what name do we call Moshe from you know the Medrash in Kohelas Rabasi describes that all people are given three names everyone has three names but Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't given three names how many was he given ten names his father Amram called him Hever his mother called him Yikusil. His sister Miriam called him Yered. His brother Aaron called him Avizanoach. His grandfather Kahas called him Avisocho. Even Hashem had a name for him. But we don't use any of those names. We don't use Hashem's name. Not his mother, not his father, not his brother, not his sister. What name do we use for him of the ten names? The name that was given from the Egyptian princess whose father tried to kill our people. That's the name that we always use. You probably never even heard of most of those other names. And we call him, universally, we all call him Moshe. Why do we call him Moshe, says Rav Nissan Alpert? Because of this. Because we are to emulate and imitate Bisya Basparo, Vatach to first feel pity and then to ask questions. You know, today, sadly, if you see somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire, you'll say, Who'd you vote for in the last presidential election? <laughs> somebody uh, needs a shiva meal. Well, which minion do they dive in at? What kind of yarmulke do they wear on their head? Where do their grandchildren go to school? Before I can help them, I have to ask these questions. Do I like them? Do I not like them? Do I have things in common with them? Are they my adversary? Bisya, we call him Moshe because we remember First, have some pity, compassion, be kind. Then you want to ask some questions, then you can get into a political debate. But the first thing we do is have pity. Last word. I saw this this morning. I love this. Oh, a great Chafetz Chaim for you. I have a great Chafetz Chaim for you. This Chafetz Chaim is worth coming today just for this Chafetz Chaim. The Pasuk says, we we're going to spend a lot more time unpacking, but the Pasuk describes that Moshe walks by the snack, he he stops and he sees, nobody else sees. Why does nobody else see? There's a bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. There's a bizarre, unusual fire taking place, and nobody else stops to look. You know why? Because everybody else is texting and looking down, <laughs> they're walking. I'm not, I'm not joking. There are phenomena going on all around us as miraculous as this bush. There are miracles. There are extraordinary, exceptional things going on all around us. And we don't even notice them. Because our head is down and we're looking and texting and reading and following and taking a selfie of. And we don't even see it. Moshe sees it. And this becomes the image, the icon of leadership. Why? Because the leader has to always be on fire and never burn out. This is the image of leadership. To try to be on fire 
and never burn out. It's an unusual image. Hakadosh Baruch Hu recruits Moshe. Moshe demurs. He says, "I'm not interested." Hashem later pays him back for that hesitation. What in the world is Moshe thinking? Telling the Almighty no, as if that's even an option. There's a whole discussion. Why does he have to take his shoes off? And why do we continue to take our shoes off? On, on Harabai, you have to take your shoes off. On Yom Kippur, we take our shoes off. You can't wear leather shoes. What is the significance of shoes? All we don't have time for now. But please, God, another time. But in the context of this pasuk, in this, of this. Uh, narrative, the Pasuk says the following, Ki made love. Hashem says, take your shoes off. Not make yourself more comfortable. Why is he telling him to take your shoes off? Admas Kodesh Hu. You're standing on holy, consecrated ground. Says the Chavetz Chaim, listen to this. Al eshne. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, the second chapter of Avos says, don't say, eshne. You know, you know what I'm going to learn? When I retire and I come to Boca and I play Majan and hit the early bird special, that's when I'll go to the Parsha class. That's when I'll take up the Dafyomi. You know when I'm going to start Nachyomi? You know when I'm going to volunteer for Chesed? You know when I'll serve on a committee at the shul? When I have time. When I retire and when I have time, that's when I'll live that virtuous life I'm meant to live. When I have time. Because you think when I carve some space and I have some margin, when I have some peace and I have some tranquility, that's when I'll do these virtuous activities. But right now I'm trying to pay tuition and I'm working like a dog to earn a living and put food on my table and I'm scrambling to get my kids off to school and carpool two ways and fighting kids and there's a million things going on and I'm under enormous, immense pressure. Alachatz, all this pressure. So I can't do virtuous activity now. You know when I'll have kavana when I daven? You know when I'll say brachas out loud? You know when I'll make a meal for someone else? When I have time, when I retire. But now I'm so busy, there's no room for this virtuous activity. Says the Chavetz Chaim, Amar HaMakom made a love, Kodeshu. Every makom that you're standing on, every matzav of your life, has the potential for Kedusha. Don't say, when I get there, when I get to that place in life, and when I get to that time in my life, I'll do it. No. HaMakom made a love. The place that you're standing, meaning the place of life, Whatever age, whatever position, whatever geographic location, hamakom asherato made a love. A yid has to always live life saying to themselves, "The place that I'm in, kodesh. It has the potential for holiness and sanctity. I'm not going to give it up. I'm not forfeiting or conceding. I'm not waiting and saying, when will I have kedusha? Some other place, some other time. Hamakom asherato made a love, admas kodeshu. Whatever place you're in in life." is rich and pregnant with potential for Kedusha, for holiness. That's what Hashem was telling Moshe. That's what He's telling us. Have a fantastic week.